At this time, we're going to invite the kids to come on up front for a children's message. Come on up, find a spot to sit. Even if you're a visitor this morning, feel free to come on up. You can bring somebody along with you to come and sit with you if you'd like. All right, come on up, find a spot. There's room over here, some more room over here. All right, I'm going to need a volunteer this morning. Let's see. All right, Lila, you want to come up and stand right here? All right, here we go. I have a puzzle here. And so what I want you to do, there's different sizes, pieces, different colors and things. So I want you to put this puzzle together for us, okay? Ready? Go. And stop. Time's up. Did you get it together? You didn't get it together. What went wrong? Why didn't she get it together? She didn't have enough time, did she? Yeah, she didn't have enough time to get it together. Um, have you ever done this puzzle before? So she didn't have the experience of this puzzle, right? Can she put together a puzzle immediately that fast? That doesn't work, does it? Right? Do you think if Lila had enough time and practice that eventually she'd be able to put the puzzle together? She probably could, right? And that'd be a good thing. I kind of tricked you, didn't I? Thanks for helping. You can sit down. All right. So raise your hand if you've ever done a puzzle. All right, good. Most of you have done a puzzle, right? Okay, what are some, you can put your hands on. What are some things you need to do in order to get a puzzle together? What are some of the things you do in order to do that? Okay, you have to get them in the right spot. What are some things you do? Good. So a lot of times we start with the edge pieces, right? The straight edges. Maybe we start with those and put together the edge. And then we look for other pieces, right? We sort of pieces into colors or shapes and those kind of things. And then maybe we'll assemble part of the picture here. Maybe we assemble part of the picture and then fit it into the bigger hole, right? So there's kind of a process that we go through even when we do puzzles, right? There's some steps and a process that we go through. Now, if you think back with me, a few weeks ago, if you were here, we had a basket of apples. Do you remember the apples? Yeah. And there was one bad, if there was one bad apple, what did we say we needed to do with that one bad apple? Throw it out of the church. Throw it out of the church. That's right. That's exactly right, Ezra. That's good. High five for that. Way to go. Hey, high five. Good job. He was listening. He was learning. Good. So if there's one bad apple in the bunch, we throw it out, don't we? We get rid of it. And that's true if somebody, we said that somebody was sinning in the church, we would need to remove them. We need to get rid of them from the church, right? At some point, we need to do that. But there's a similar to how there's kind of a process with a puzzle that you go through. It's similar to addressing sin in the church. God has given us a process for addressing sin in the church, and that process takes some time, just like the puzzle would take some time, right? So let's think about that for a little bit, addressing sin. If you see someone else who's sinning, maybe a brother or a sister or a friend, do you know what you're supposed to do? You know what you're not supposed to do? You're not supposed to go tell other people. You're not supposed to come. The first thing you should do is not come and tell a pastor. First thing you should do is not even necessarily go and tell mom and dad. 
first thing you're supposed to do is you're supposed to go talk to that person who you see sin in their life. You're supposed to talk to them. Now, when you go talk to them, do you think you should get angry and yell and scream at them? No, that's not going to be real helpful, is it? You should go to them in love and kindness and help them to see their sin and address that. And when you do that, then you need to give them an opportunity. You need to give them some time. You need to give them an opportunity to uh, confess that sin, to seek forgiveness from God, and to turn away from that sin. But after some time, if they continue in their sin, then there's a next step. Next, you're supposed to take one or two other people along with you to talk to that person about their sin. So this time, maybe it would be a, a brother or sister that you'd take along with or another friend. Maybe at this point, maybe it's talking with mom and dad and having mom or dad come with you to talk to them about their sin. And again, you need to do it and give them time to seek forgiveness and to turn from their sin. But if they still continue in their sin, then you're supposed to bring it to the church, right? Then you maybe bring it and talk to one of the pastors or the elders, and and then we address their sin together with them. And again, even then they need time to uh, confess their sin and to seek forgiveness and to repent, to turn away from their sin and turn to God. And after it's addressed as the church, that's when, if they continue in their sin, that bad apple needs to get removed, right? So that's when we would remove someone from the church. So that's God's process for addressing sin, and you can be part of that when you see sin in other people's lives. And so with every step, remember, time is given for that person to repent, to turn from their sin, and to follow God. It also is something for us to think about because sometimes other people need to talk to us about our sin, don't they? And so when that happens, when somebody talks to us about our sin, we need to look at that and seek forgiveness and repentance too. So the goal is always that people would turn from their sin and turn to follow God. And when they do, then they can be restored to fellowship with God and to others within the church. And that's a really good thing when that happens. So Pastor Jeremy's going to talk to us more about that. So thanks, everybody, for coming up. You can go back and have a seat. All right. Thank you, Pastor Jeff. Uh, Pastor Jeff and I, along with some others, were at a conference last, last week. Really good on church music, actually. The Gettys put it on. So thanks for making that possible. We had a blast down there in Nashville. It was a really good time. But very glad to be back here. Uh, just going to continue on in our series right in 1 Corinthians. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 13. If you need a Bible, there are Bibles in the seats in front of you. I'd encourage you to get it out. We're going to be flipping around to a few texts. We'll be in 1 Corinthians 5. We'll also be in Matthew 18 and a few others. All right. The central issue in this text is what Pastor Jeff just talks about, church discipline. Uh, church discipline is God's gift to the church to lovingly, hopefully restore those who by their sin would destroy themselves and destroy others. All right? So... Sin is always destructive. Sin always separates. Um, sin always destroys. And church discipline is God's gift to the church to guard people who would destroy themselves and others by their sin. That's true. It's not a harsh thing. It's not a mean thing. It's 
not a judgmental thing. Right? It's a good gift of God. Um, we're also going to see in our text this morning how to relate to the unbelieving world and also see that the purpose of discipline is always God's glory and the restoration of someone we love. But church discipline is hard, and it only takes one thing, faith. It takes trusting God in His Word and doing what He says, even though everything inside of you screams no. It takes faith. Let me read the text. We'll pray. We'll get into it. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray. Father, we want to do what is just and right. Protect us from those who would stand against that. God, our eyes long for your salvation, the fulfillment of your righteous promise. We ask that you would deal with us according to your steadfast love and especially teach us your word. We are your servants. Give us understanding that we might know your testimonies. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 9, you read that Paul wrote a letter before this letter. So 1 Corinthians could actually be called 2 Corinthians, and then there's another letter between 1 and 2, and so 2 Corinthians could be 4 Corinthians. We don't have that first letter. God didn't preserve it for us. We have this one. But in that letter, Paul tells us that he wrote dealing with sexual immorality. Uh, Either Paul wasn't clear or they misunderstood him. They took him to mean how to deal with those outside the church who are in sexual morality. And Paul said that wasn't what he was dealing with at all. He was instead dealing with those inside the church. What have I to do with those outside? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So Paul is talking about how to relate to those in the church and how to relate to those outside the church. Those outside the church, we don't expect to act like those who should be inside the church. This is a a common mistake that believers make. You sit there tisking the nightly news that people aren't acting more like you want them to ask as Christians. They're not Christians. They are to be held to God's law. God will deal with that. But we don't expect them to act like the church. Now, in some ways, sometimes those outside the faith act uh, more like we should act than we do. For that, we give God thanks. It's all His grace. But those outside the church, we don't hold to the same thing that we do to those inside the church. Now, inside the church, Paul says that those who bear the name of brother, right? you see that in verse 11, anyone who bears the name of brother, that is anyone who is confessing Christ, anyone who is saying to God, I am a sinner, I need Jesus Christ as my Savior, 
And when you are in Christ, that makes you a sibling to everyone else who confesses Christ. This is a definition of the church. We're a family who bears the name of brother. We are siblings in Christ. We have a father, God. Anyone who bears that name, we have a responsibility to. See what's going on here. Jesus said, you, before you become a Christian, you should count the cost. Sometimes we think of becoming a Christian like good insurance. It, it's just there when we need it. We don't have to do anything in the meantime. It's just a policy in a safe somewhere. And it's only taken out when we're in trouble. Not so. Becoming a Christian um, is to take on responsibility before God and before others. Jesus said that the two great commands are love the Lord God of the heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. What Paul is talking about here is the requirement for Christians on how to love others. That's what this falls under. This is what Paul's saying. When you become a Christian, you take on responsibility for others to love them, to lay down your life for them. And Paul's going to define one way that we're to do that here, that this church hasn't been doing at all. Okay? And, and the responsibility is a responsibility to judge. <gasps> notice the language in verse 12. And notice that you'll never see a politician ever say anything like this. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you, plural, are to judge? <laughs> Paul must have made a mistake with that word, right? It, the Greek must mean something different there, right? This is hard stuff. Now, the simple reality, if you are at all uh, a conscious human being, is that you can't help but judge. You're always making judgments. To be human is to make judgments. Anyone ever tells you you shouldn't judge, they're judging. They're a liar too. Right? Why, why do you have to judge? Because you've got to make sense of this world. You've got to protect people. You've got to decide safe, unsafe, right, wrong. You, you ha- you're constantly making judgments, even about what's good and what's not so good. You can't help it. You, you are human born to make sense of a world that God put you in so you can glorify Him. This means you have to make judgments. And inside the church, to others who call themselves Christian, you and I are given a responsibility to judge them. This, is, this isn't just a past, pastor's calling. Paul doesn't say, is it not those inside the church whom the pastor is to judge? It doesn't say elders and not those inside the church whom the elders are to judge. What does it say? Is it not those inside the church whom you, who is the you referring to? The antecedent here is the church, right? Whom Isn't those in the, in the church whom you, the church, are to judge? This is your calling as a Christian. This is your good gift of God to love others. 
You, in a sense, are guardrails for your brothers and sisters. You are here to protect each other from our base inclinations to sin all the way to hell, bringing people with us. That's our job for each other. That's our job for each other. Now, Paul shows the extent to which we're to do this. If somebody who bears the name brother in verse 11 is guilty of, and he gives a list of sins, this list isn't exhaustive. That is, Paul isn't giving you a list of sins that you are to do this kind of work for and then all the other sins you're not supposed to. He's probably dealing with the sins most prevalent that he knows inside that church at that time. The issue here is unrepentant, ongoing sin. This brings us to a major thing. Many churches have abused this. There are churches who take on this task of church discipline, but abuse it. There are churches that make judgments, but abuse it. There are pastors and elders, right, and, and men and women who are uh, judgmental. They're abusive in their judgments. They're, they're making wrong judgments. And because of that, then, the church at large has said, all right, we're not going to do it at all. That's, that's an overreaction. That's the pendulum swinging to a, another ditch, right over the road into the other ditch. And, and so here's what you make these judgments for. You make them for things that the Bible calls sin that you actually see in the lives of people who refuse to repent of it. Let's start that first thing. Paul says that you're supposed to actually make these judgments about sin. Now, where do we go to figure out what is sin and what isn't sin? In the Bible. So this isn't giving you a license to take your personal preferences and deal harshly with others. That's what the church has done. They've taken personal preference, elevated them to the level of God's commandment, and, and treated people harshly. Not based on biblical truth, but on their own personal cultural preferences. This can go to skirt length. Now, there is a point at which skirt length becomes ungodly. And tightness of clothing becomes ungodly. And it's easy to see. It's not a hard judgment. You can go to eating. You can go to what music you listen to. If you play cards. Now, as far as I can see, nowhere in the Bible is card playing a sin. I've read the Bible several times through. It's not in there. I like euchre. <laughs> Mandy especially. Don't play cards with her. She'll always beat you. Been married to how long? 18 years. I hardly ever win. And I'm, a, I'm not a good loser. It's caused stress in our marriage. All right, and there's these other lists of things. And what you are not given license to do is take your list of things and use them to apply that. See, what happens is people who do that aren't willing to ever look at themselves. Because they always measure up to their list, right? Because you only might write a list that you know you measure up to. You never include things on your list that you don't do well because <laughs> you're a hypocrite, 
right? Because you're mean. That's what we do to each other. That's not what we're talking about here. Paul is giving you the authority and responsibility to lovingly make judgments of others based on the objective word of God and nothing else. You are not to go above that line. You are not to go below that line. You are to hold the line on what the Bible calls sin. That's it. If you see a brother or sister down at Bucketheads having a beer, you thank God for it. You don't go away going, they must not be a very nice Christian. Now, if they have 10, that's another thing, right? Drunkenness is a sin. If you see somebody going into the Roman cinema and they're going to see Fifty Shades of Grey, you should make a judgment. That's sin. You can't watch that movie without sinning. And probably most Disney movies too. That's another thing. So you have to make biblical judgments. Jesus doesn't say don't make judgments. He says make right judgments. You know what he says before you're supposed to make a judgment on somebody else? You're supposed to judge yourself. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. So Paul is giving us this good gift of church discipline for sin in order to... uh, Bring restoration out. Again, the extent that Paul says to go to is not even to eat with such a one. In verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. Paul is quoting in verse 13 from Deuteronomy. It's several places in Deuteronomy. One place is Deuteronomy 17.7. You want to turn there with me? Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible. So five books in from the beginning. In Deuteronomy 17.7. We're actually going to start in verse 6. So Deuteronomy 17.16 and 7. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses. Okay, You're going to hear that again in Matthew 18 in a moment. When Jesus says take two or three with you. He's not just talking about grabbing another random two or three people in the church. He's talking about people who witness what you witnessed. Eyewitnesses. So, on the evidence of two or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. This, let me apply this real quick. You've been following the Supreme Court nomination of Judge Kavanaugh and this woman who has made an accusation against him. She may be saying what's true, but biblically she doesn't have a case. Why? There's no other witnesses. And any of the people who she had named as witnesses deny what she's saying. She might be right. God will judge. But there's a biblical precedent. Our country has taken this biblical precedent and applied it to our law. Thank God for it. You can apply this to parenting. If you have a child who tattles on another child... That's, that's not sufficient evidence to punish a child based on two or three witnesses. Parents make mistakes on this all the time. We've done it. We, we discipline our child for something that we think happened without two or three witnesses because we have a high sense of justice and we want to deal with it. You can't deal with it unless you have two or three witnesses. All right. The hand of the witness shall be the first against him to put him to death and afterward the hand of all people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. That's where Paul is quoting from. So the context here of 1 Corinthians 5 is Deuteronomy. And in the Old Testament, 
there were certain sins that were liable for the death penalty. And Paul is taking that now into the church, not as a, uh, the church has no right to put people to death. Paul says in Romans 13 that the sword belongs to the state. The state alone can issue capital judgment. So if you're a Christian, capital judgment is not only biblical allowable, but biblically required. But it's not the church's job, it's the state's job. But Paul takes that language and applies to the church as the death of sorts, where somebody who has an ongoing, unrepentant sin should be removed. Or in Pastor Jeff's language with the rotten apple. Don't you cringe when you hear that? I was cringing there. Thrown out. Removed. Doesn't that make you cringe? I think it's because we lack faith in God's word. We, we think that we know how to handle this better than God knows how to handle it. So that's what's going on in 1 Corinthians 5. Now, we all want process. How do we do this? Does this immediately go from one sin to kick them out? How do we, how do we actually do this? How do we put this feet on the ground? How, do, how are we going to do this on Monday morning? How, how are you supposed to do this? Because Paul here in verse 12 is giving you this responsibility. God has given you this responsibility. Now, God is very kind and gracious. He doesn't just tell you what to do. He gives you all the hows. This is the great thing with God. He doesn't leave you guessing on how to do it. He doesn't give you the, the responsibility of the church. Say, he, he says, here's, how, here's what to do, and then you decide how to do it. He doesn't do that. He, he says, here's what to do, and now here's how to do it. There are lots of examples in the Bible on this. And then there's one text that kind of spells it out, and that text is Matthew 18, which is Paul is relying on here, so let's turn there. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. If you hit Malachi and a bunch of those books that you've never heard of before, you've gone too far back. So go back to that. Matthew 18. Matthew 18. All right, the context of Matthew 18 is dealing with sin, the entire chapter. Verse 6, Jesus is welcoming children unto him. He's, he's, he's saying that we need to become like children, but woe to the one uh, who causes a child to sin. It would be better to have a great millstone faster than that can drown in the depths of the sea. So how do we deal with sin? So here's the thing. Our age, our culture is radically, autonomously individualistic. You've heard it a million times. As long as they're not hurting anybody, who cares what they're doing? You've heard that, right? Right? You've heard that. And, and, you, and you should know that that's foolish because what you do always impacts others. We live in a world built by God of relationships, covenantally. Everything you do affects others, downstream, always. There is no such thing as as long as what they're doing doesn't affect anybody else. It always is affecting everybody else. All all that means is, I just want to do what I want to do. Leave me the heck alone. That's That's what your five-year-old does when they're throwing a fit. We just get, uh, 
what I want to say. We just get better at not looking like it's a fit the older we get. That's what we do. Because we know that throwing a fit doesn't work when you're 18 anymore. Well, it still works in our culture. Look at most college campuses today. As long as you yell loud enough, you'll get your way in our culture. (laughs) Except if you're a Christian, we don't do that. So Matthew 18 is dealing with sin because sin always hurts others, is Jesus' point. Sin is always going to take somebody else down. So what do we do with sin among among God's people? What do we do? Well, in verses 7 to 9, the first thing he does, those of you who are sinning, deal with your sin radically. Cut off your hand. Pluck out your eye. Don't play with it. Your sin wants to destroy you. Destroy it first. John Owen said, either you'll be killing sin or sin will be killing you. There's no neutral. There's no Switzerland in sin. Please tell me you know that reference, right? Okay. So the first thing to do with sin is cut it off. It is better for you to enter eternal life with one eye than with two than be thrown in the hell of fire. So there is an eternal hell. There is eternal suffering apart from the presence of God in hell. There is a hell that is fire. There is such a thing as brimstone and fire. And people who live in unrepentant sin will go there. And Jesus said it's better thing for you as a believer to deal with your sin radically, to deal with your sin embarrassingly. Everybody will see if you cut off your hand and pluck out your eye. Everybody will know that you're dealing with sin. And it's better to be embarrassed before others. It's better to be lame in this life than to go to hell. Now, he is not saying actually cut off your hand and pluck out your eye. He is saying deal with your sin radically, decisively. Don't play with it. And then Jesus says, what do you do if there is a sheep wandering, astray in sin? You go after it. You don't let it go. You go after it. God sent his son to earth to take our place for our sin. And that becomes the paradigm for how we deal with those who are in sin. We go after them. Some the church won't do. Somebody's in sin and leaves the church and we all sit here and talk about why they left. We go after them. You call them. You go to their house. You see them in the grocery store and you say, when are you coming back? You do the uncomfortable stuff. You don't act like nothing's wrong. They're going to hell. You go after them. Now, if you have a child who's been wayward, you understand this. Because it's at that moment that you wish the church had some guts and would do something. My child's going to hell. My child's in all kinds of sin. My child's destroying their life. And the church does nothing. Nothing. You know what they do? They talk about you. They talk about what you did as a parent that caused your child to do that behind your back. They won't do anything for your child. And it's unjust and it's unloving and you as a parent finally wake up to how good church discipline is. Then, we need this. What do you do in verse 16 if a brother sins against you? You go to him. You go to him. Now, In Proverbs, it says, it is glory to overlook an offense. When somebody sins against you, you have two choices. You overlook it, and you forget about it, 
and you act like it never happened, you can do that with some sin. Right. You overhear some, somebody saying something and you don't take it to heart and you forget about it. Big deal. Right. Somebody, you're out working at the new church and somebody who's in charge says something in a way that you prefer them not to say it. You don't get all bent out of shape. You don't go tell anybody else. You forget about it. You overlook it. It's glory to overlook an offense. That's one thing you can do. But there are some offenses that cannot be overlooked. You try to overlook them maybe, but three weeks later, you're still up late at night dealing with the consequences of the sin. Or the sin is destructive enough that it's going to affect others. Then you've got to deal with it. And, and Jesus says, the first thing to do prayerfully is to go to that person. Now again, there's other things the Bible says about this. Prayer. You can seek counsel. Gossip is talking about somebody for no good reason to somebody else. If somebody sins against you, it's not gossip to go to a pastor, an elder, or another godly believer that you trust, that you go with and try to maintain anonymity. Make it anonymous. And I'm not even going to attempt because I know I can't say it now. Uh, and you, you ask that godly person, how should I deal with this? This is hard. Can I get your advice? Can I get your, help me to be biblical here. That's good. But you have to go to the person. Please tell me, if we did this, wouldn't our lives be so much happier in the church? I hate gossip. I hate it with a passion. If you gossip in this church and we found out about it, we are going to come and talk with you. It is an evil. It destroys friendships. It makes people not trust each other. It's what the world does all over again. Why do you want that here when it's out there? Leave it alone. For goodness sake, stop talking about other people for no good reason. Jesus says the thing you do is go talk to the person. Or shut up. There's no in-between ground. Please. Please. You know what a destroyer this is. You know it. You know how bad it hurts when you find out that somebody else is talking about you. A whisperer, Proverbs says, separates close friends. How many friendships do you know have been destroyed because of something somebody else said who's not in the friendship? We've had it in the new building. Somebody heard somebody, somebody else, something, and now they don't trust. It's ridiculous. Be done with it for goodness sake. Jesus said the first thing to do when somebody else sins against you is go to them. So here's the eyewitnessing. You have eyewitnessed the sin. You go to them. Why do you go to them? Because you love them. Why wouldn't you go to them? Why would you refrain from doing what Jesus said to do? Because you don't love him. Because you're afraid. Because you don't trust God's word. Because you want to protect yourself. Now, this isn't to be woodenly applied. What, what, what I mean is, you might see someone in sin in our church and you don't know them at all. You have no relationship with them. There are certain times where you should not go to somebody. Uh, the book of Proverbs says, in consecutive verses, 
Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he seem right in his own eyes. So you have somebody who's in sin, and you go and deal with their sin so that they don't get arrogantly prideful in their sin. That's what's going on in 1 Corinthians 5. The next verse says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest he scorn upon you. Consecutive verses saying completely opposite, seemingly opposed things. You should deal with somebody in their sin lest they become arrogantly thinking it's okay, or you should not answer somebody in their sin lest they heap scorn upon you. What's going on there? It's saying you just need wisdom. There are certain times where you know somebody is going to do nothing but beat you to heck verbally, and it's just not, don't even deal with it. Just let it go. I was just at Disney. Let it go, let it go, right? That's playing in my head now. Uh, uh, you just, you, there, so there's wisdom needed. That's why I think you need counsel. But Jesus said, if somebody sends you, you go to him. Now, if he doesn't listen, verse 16, take one or two others. Now, who are these one or two others? Where did they come from? Well, this is going back to Deuteronomy. Two or three other witnesses. If you don't have two or three other witnesses, you're done. It's over. Now, that is, unless the sin that is being committed is very publicly heinous, then it needs to be dealt with. That's what we see in 1 Corinthians 5. If you read 1 Timothy 5, this idea of two or three witnesses is applied specifically to church leadership and eldership. It is only based on the evidence of two or three witnesses that you should ever entertain an accusation against an elder. And then if that accusation is proven founded, the elder must be dealt with publicly, even if nobody else knows about the sin. That's what's going wrong in this Kavanaugh business. There's no justice there. There's no justice there. He might have done it, but it's not just how it's going. So, if he does listen, in verse 15, if he repents, then you've gained your brother. And that's the whole goal of this all. Restoration via repentance. Why? Because sin is a destroyer. Because sin is an offense to God. So, if you go to your brother, he listens to you, you're done. If he doesn't listen, you take two or three eyewitnesses. If he refuses to listen after two or three witnesses. Now listen, this isn't like on Monday you go and he doesn't listen. Then on Tuesday you go with two or three witnesses. He doesn't listen. Then on Wednesday you go to the church. There could be months of this process. You might go to your brother or sister repeatedly and talk it through. You know that this is always very confusing, right? You, you see something that you think is clear and you go to the person and now you, you're very confused on what you thought was very clear. You could have lots of conversation about this, lots of biblical searching. You might go to the person repeatedly over months and then he's not listening and then you might do it for two or three or six months going with other people before you take it to the church. But if after two or three doesn't listen, you take it to the church. Okay? And then if he does not listen, if after going to the church with all that prayer and people going to this person, he does not listen, Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now Jesus is taking uh, racial language and then vocational language. Jews and Gentiles were racially uh, at odds. 
Jews uh, could not eat with a tax collector, or I mean a Gentile. They couldn't have fellowship in the home with an unclean Gentile. And Christians, uh, we don't divide racially anymore. Right? We divide sin. Somebody is on an ongoing unrepentant sin, that's unclean. That we're to separate from. That's where Paul is getting the language in 1 Corinthians 5. From Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then a tax collector was somebody who was a traitor. Somebody who was a Benedict Arnold. Somebody who was a part of your group who now joined the enemy. And not only joined the enemy, but is the enemy's uh, fundraising wing. (laughs) Vile person. Disgusting. You would never have that person into your home for dinner. That's how we're supposed to treat somebody who calls themselves a Christian, who continues an ongoing unrepentant sin even after many months of painful, tearful, prayerful uh, rebuke and challenge. And then what Jesus says in verses 19 to 23 is crazy. Please hear this now. Again, I say to you, If two of you, oh, I'm sorry, verse 18. Truly, when Jesus says truly, he's saying, hey, listen, everything I've said is really important, but what I'm about to say is really, really important. Truly, I, the incarnate God, say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, you've heard that verse before. And you've almost always heard it misapplied. (laughs) This is two Christians on a Sunday morning at a beach saying, oh, two or three are gathered. We're having church. Right? I mean, if you'd read the context around that, you'd laugh. This isn't about saying wherever Christians are, on a fishing boat or on a golf course or whatever, you can, you can abstain going from your local church because you're having church as long as there's two Christians present. <laughs> it's talking about church discipline is the context of that verse. See, what? ironically, the people who are skipping church are the ones that are needing a church discipline. And they're using the verse to excuse their sin. We're funny people, aren't we? We are so funny as human beings. We take the verse that should rebuke us as uh, permitting what we're doing. (laughs) I don't know. Why don't you? I think that's funny. I've done that. That's why I think that's funny. All right. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, uh, he's going back to Genesis 1 and 2 here. Um, I have a few minutes left, but I think this is worth it, right? This is worth it. We don't have Sunday school. Packer game's not till noon. You're so enthralled, you want me to keep going. All right. All right. <laughs> you know, even if you said no. It... <laughs> All right. In Genesis 1, God says, let us make mankind in our image. And in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, that word image is huge. Some, most often we think of God is like this, and in some way, shape, or form, we're like him. Right? God is a 
relational God and so are relational. God is a cognition God. He thinks. He knows. And so human beings think and knows, unlike all the other creation. God is righteous, and so we're made to be righteous. It's more like thinking in the image of God means certain traits or aspects. I think that's true, but that's not really what it's getting at. When it says we're made in his image, it's more of a verb than a noun. It's we're his imagers. We were made to live for God's glory. We were made to live in such a way that the truth of who God is is seen in our lives. We're made to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That image talk is talking about how you live, not what you are mostly. It's talking about are you imaging God? Are you living in such a way that the truth of who God is is seen however obscurely in a fallen world, however dimly that you're striving to live for God's glory? Why? Because God has given human beings great authority on earth. God in the garden dwelt with Adam and Eve. They were his family. They were his representative on earth. They, they were given real significant authority on earth. They were to live as God's representatives, God's imagers on earth. And whatever they did, it was as if God in heaven were doing it. Whatever they didn't do, it was as if God in heaven were not doing it. Jesus picks up on this in this verse relating to church discipline. What he's saying here, at the church is now the new humanity, right? We are the ones being recreated in God's image. We are Adam and Eve before the fall in a sense. We still sin, but we are made new. We are forgiven. We are being restored back into Christ's image. And he's saying, whatever the church, God's new humanity does on earth, it's ratified in heaven. This is big. You see this? Scary big, the authority God has given us. Now in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul's going to take that and apply it to lawsuits. The church is going to judge angels. Can you not make a simple legal declaration, church? What is wrong with you? Pick up your authority and use it. Jesus is taking that same principle and applying it to church discipline. If the church decides that someone who calls himself a Christian but is living an ongoing, unrepentant sin, though they've been lovingly pleaded with and prayed for and rebuked over months, continues in their sin and the church removes him, what the church is saying is we no longer think that person is a believer. And God is here saying, Jesus is saying that that decision on earth is ratified in heaven. That doesn't mean God is bound by our decisions. We'll get this wrong. We're not omniscient. We don't know everything. But at least you must admit the crazy authority that is given. Now, what do you do if someone grievously sins against you and repents? You forgive. Why do you do that? Because of verses 21 to 35. And Peter, right? So Jesus is having all this sin language. And after this, Peter comes up and says, Lord, how often should I forgive my brother? What do I do with repeated sin? How, if, if he's repentant, asking for forgiveness, how, how many times should I forgive him? 
Seven? And Peter's be- thinking he's being generous there. You know what Peter's doing? He's fishing for a compliment here. That's what Peter's doing. He th- he's picking a number that he thinks is outrageous. <laughs> he thinks seven is over the top. And what does Jesus say? No, no, no. Not, not seven times, Peter. Seventy-seven times. And then Jesus tells this parable of a king who wished to settle the account, who forgave a servant a crazy, huge, eternally long, unrepayable debt. That's what God has done for you in Christ. He has forgiven your treasonous rebellion against your creator. All of it. And he didn't just wink at it and sweep it under the rug. Justice was satisfied in that the eternal Son of God took on human flesh, took your sin upon him, and suffered an ignominious, shameful death on a cross in your place. He has forgiven you a Himalayan mountain of sin. And what do we do when someone sins against us? How dare they? And we won't forgive, and we hold grudges, and we nurse bitterness. And if you remember the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts, trespasses, sins. That's not it, though, right? As. What is that word, as, you grammatical people? Just as. As we forgive those who have sinned against us. That's sobering if you think about what's being said there. That's what's going on here. The rule of the kingdom is forgiveness. So long as they're repentance. How often should you forgive your brother? As often as he repents. How often should you forgive your sister? I'll finish your friends. I, I, that's applicable to your marriage, isn't it? That applicable to your friendships in the church? Now, some of you continue to hold offenses against others in our church. Yeah, I'm the pastor. I get to hear all this stuff. And, and the, the problem is that you've never gone and talked to your brother or sister about the offense. And so you treat them differently now. They know you treat them differently. Other people around you know you treat them differently. And you're blaming that person. It's your fault now. You have to go to them. You have to go to them and explain. Patiently, gently, humbly, you might be wrong in what you saw. You have to go to them. You don't nurse it. You don't hold them against them. You go to them. And when they respond repentantly, God, please, if somebody comes to you, listen. You're a sinner. You've probably been wrong. You might not know it. Please listen. You you only ask forgiveness if you've done something wrong. We don't lie in the church. Those people who tell you in marriage, just ask for your wife's forgiveness, even if you've done nothing wrong. That's a lie. That doesn't help anything. All right, let me just end with a story. 
It's a, it's a family story, but it applies to the church. This is a pastor friend of mine. Um, he grew up in a household of a man who was a well-known Christian author, worked for InterVarsity, traveling all over, leading students to Christ, discipling students, wrote for World Magazine. He was a well-known Christian figure. Um, the son of this man was wayward in his 20s, left the faith, drugs, alcohol, women, left the faith. Months into that, his father one night came into his bedroom. He's living in an apartment somewhere with friends. His father found his room, went to his house, came into his bedroom, woke him up and said, I love you, son. I love you. And then left. And that was instrumental in that man coming back to the Lord. Now, many, if, you, if you knew that you probably have heard that story before in some shape or form, what you don't know is months, weeks before that had happened, the father had kicked his son out of his house. He had seen his son's life. He came to his son and said, Son, you're living a life that's displeasing to our father in heaven. I want you to leave. Kick the son out. He, he did discipline. He did church discipline. He kicked his son out. Didn't disown him. Didn't, you're done, son. Out. Uh, the son came to his father asking for rent money so he could move out. His father refused. Wasn't going to help him. Right. Um, after that was when the father came to the son and said, I love you. Could, and, and that moment would have meant nothing if his father hadn't kicked him out of the house. The son came to the Lord because the father loved his heavenly father and did what he should have done. This is what the church needs to do for each other. We're really good at telling each other we love each other, but it often rings hollow if we're not willing to do the hard stuff. And in 1 Corinthians 5, the church was to remove the man. We don't know the end of the story. In 2 Corinthians, Paul reminds the church to restore the man who's repentant. We don't know if it's this man or not. Could be. But these are what we're supposed to do for each other if we love each other, if we care for each other. This is what you're supposed to do as a parent, what you're supposed to do if you're involved in government, Workplace, friendships, whatever. But this is for the church. God judges those outside. We are to judge those inside in love so that they might repent and be restored. Let's pray. Well, Father, we need your help on this. We uh, often don't want to do this. We are reluctant to. Help us to be convinced of the goodness of it, of the wisdom of it of how it is actually loving to do it and unloving not to do it. And so, God, help us to take this up. Guard us from our own sin. Help us to be more diligent in dealing with our own sin than the sin of others. And God, help us to be patient with those in sin. And God, I pray that you would use this to restore those who are in ongoing destructive sin, that they might be saved. And so, God, please use us to do this good work for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the charge is this. Ask God for faith to love others enough that you might be willing to do what we talked about today.
That's what I want. Prayer for faith. My dear, let's stand with the benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. May the love of God go with you all in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Have a great week in the Lord.